episode 337 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express here do not reflect those of our firm, our clients, our families, our pets. Uh, frankly, they may not even reflect our views three weeks from today. Uh, we're going to interview today. We're going to have an interview with Dr. Peter Pry, who was chief of staff of the Congressional EMP Commission. If you're wondering what EMP is, you got to stick around for the interview to find out. But he served on the House Armed Services Committee and at the CIA. And uh, um, what he's going to be talking about is pretty scary stuff. So uh, stick around. Uh, and joining me for the news roundup, are Sultan Meiji, who has more than 20 years in technology and international business. He's led cybersecurity and financial services companies, and he's currently advising private equity corporations and startups. Sultan, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. All right. And uh, Michael Weiner, uh, uh, a Steptoe partner who uh, has insight into a lot of antitrust and litigation issues. And Michael, it's great to have you back again. Pleasure to be here. That's probably not good news for uh, uh, big companies with large market shares, but uh, it's it's good uh, news for our listeners. Uh, uh, and also Charles Elibut, uh, who's a partner at Steptoe uh, in our European cybersecurity data and privacy practice. Uh, Charles, great to have you. Thank you. Great to be back. It's practically an all-steptoe lineup today, I should say, because Dan Poder rounds out the uh, the panel. Uh, uh, Dan focuses on white-collar criminal defense, government, and internal investigations, uh, uh, but he's going to be talking about privacy uh, uh, today. Dan, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Stuart. All right. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and hosting and provoking uh, on today's program. Uh, uh, so I guess we kind of have to acknowledge that there was an election, uh, that Joe Biden got more votes than anybody else, uh, and that Silicon Valley did a whole lot of uh, arm waving and uh, heavy breathing. Um, I don't know what more to say about this. There are some interesting stories that came out of this, uh, uh, but I don't want to spend too much time on it because, in fact, as I said on the last show, um, the whole election security hoorah uh, reminded me of Y2K, where uh, you couldn't help thinking that it was being overhyped. And at the same time, you couldn't let that suspicion uh, lead you to just stop worrying about it because the consequences of uh, an actual event were so catastrophic. And it's turned out to be exactly that way. Uh, we will never know whether uh, Cybercom, uh, Cyber Command uh, and uh, CISA at DHS rescued us from disaster or whether they were just uh, uh, talking up the threat and um, uh, patting each other on the back. Uh, just just as we'll never know whether Y2K was as serious as people said. Uh, but we're all glad to have gotten past the um, attack or the threat of an attack on election security. Uh, Silicon Valley's efforts to curb misinformation struck me as, as not so not quite as intrusive as I thought they would be. Uh, they, they didn't shut down that many 
uh, uh, tweets. They suppressed a lot of stuff. They made it harder to uh, uh, pass on information. But they are actually much more active now afterwards, uh, probably because they think they can safely do pretty much anything they want to Donald Trump because what's he going to do in the next uh, uh, two months that uh, they have to worry about? Um, And they are uh, suppressing his tweets about uh, fraud much more aggressively. They're uh, taking down uh, uh, Stop the Steal hashtags and groups. Um, And you know, since I, I think if the election was stolen, it wasn't stolen after uh, the uh, election day. It was probably uh, uh, stolen with fraud, you know, beforehand. Uh, uh, there's lots of room for fraud in the way ballots were handled this time around. Uh, and uh, the effort by Silicon Valley to insist that it's not possible to engage in fraud with mail-in ballots is nutty. All I want to do is I want to call them up and say, hey, I've got a great idea for you. I'm going to uh, uh, charge your credit card $1,000 as long as something I mail to you comes back with your signature on it. Um, And if it looks like enough like your signature for Visa or MasterCard, we'll just take your money. How's that? How's that sound to you? It's crazy. No one would would take a deal like that in uh, in their private life. And yet we're supposed to say that um, uh, it's just fine in the context of uh, deciding who the leader of the free world will be. I, I think that's a little nutty, but uh, uh, that's not the same as suggesting that the election is being stolen as we watch. I, I think that's uh, people misreading the uh, the counts. So that's uh, that's pretty much it. Oh, I, one other thing. I, uh, Steve Bannon was actually kicked off of Twitter and YouTube over what were called calls for violence in which he and his show um, talked about the idea of putting uh, uh, Director Ray and Anthony Fauci's uh, heads on pikes at the corners of the uh, White House fence. I, you know, I, the idea that that's a call to violence is crazy uh, and uh, um, and so it's it's an excuse to shut down somebody that the left hates uh, which is of course the problem with all of these speech monitors it's not possible to police the many ways in which uh, hatred of the right can infect the, the speech rules but this is certainly one of them uh, 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 I, I think I tweeted that uh, if that's a threat for vi- of, of violence that uh, you YouTube would shut down, then YouTube should be nuked from orbit, um, uh, which, of course, is a shocking threat of violence uh, and will no doubt lead to this podcast being uh, suppressed. All right. I, I, you guys do not have to comment on that because uh, I've gotten it all off my cho- chest. Uh, let's move to some real law uh, and potentially pretty significant law. Um, uh, Michael, uh, the Justice Department has filed an antitrust suit, uh, not against Google, but in a field that is that ties into technology because it is a challenge to Visa's multi-billion dollar acquisition of a t- fintech company called Plaid. Um, how big a deal is this for fintech and for the willingness of the Justice Department to police um, uh, 
the borders of technology? Well, it's a $5.3 billion deal. Um, so for the investors in Plaid, it's, it's a very big deal. Um, Plaid is, is a company that, that, uh, that powers a, a large number of significant fintech apps like Venmo. It's not a current competitor uh, to, to Visa, but it's a potential rival to, to Visa's dominance. Um, what the Justice Department alleges is that Visa has got a 70% share of a market for online debit transactions and that this is a market that's entrenched by network effects. You need uh, millions of uh, merchants in order to attract hundreds of millions of consumers and need hundreds of millions of consumers in order to attract millions of merchants. Uh, MasterCard is the only rival really to Visa today with about a 25% market share, but its growth is restricted. Uh, and Plaid um, has the technology. It's got connections already with 11,000 U.S. banks and with 200 million consumer bank accounts. It's the only, it's, it's the most likely potential rival uh, to Visa's dominance and Visa's 88% margins. Um, so it's a pretty big deal. Yeah. So Venmo basically allows bank to bank transactions from consumer bank account to uh, uh, payee bank account. And so um, if you're in the debit business, that does kind of sound like what you're doing. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I have to say, it, it's sort of embarrassing that it's a lot cheaper to send people money in the Philippines than it is in the United States, uh, uh, because technology in the U.S. just has not um, moved in a direction that the rest of the world has moved in. Uh, so uh, this is the Justice Department saying, well, and we think the reason for that is that Visa's been uh, uh, monopolizing debit transactions. Yeah, so Dodd Frank put a cap on the on the level of interchange fees, but not a level on the uh, on the fees that Visa can charge. So they've they've grown a uh, very large business. The allegation of the complaint is that uh, that services like a new service from Plaid would reduce costs by about ninety five percent. So this is this is another nascent competition case. The allegation is not that Plaid is a current competitor, but that it's poised to enter and uh, and be a very significant player uh, and rival to, to Visa in a, in a position that, uh, that no one else has. So one question. This is the second uh, antitrust case that uh, the Justice Department has filed, big antitrust cases that the department has filed in the last month. Um, how many big cases can the Justice Department actually expect to litigate and win? Are they approaching um, their uh, their capacity? Well, um, probably. Um, you know, I think the, one of the real takeaways here is that, uh, uh, is that the antitrust division is willing to take cases to court, and they're continuing to pursue nascent competition theories. They tried that earlier this year in seeking to block Sabre's acquisition of Fairlogic's uh, which DOJ alleged was a, a nascent competitor in the uh, global distribution system business. Uh, the court rejected that challenge um, uh, and found for Sabre, although that deal was ultimately dropped after the UK Competition and Markets Authority uh, found that, uh, that in fact, it, it was a violation of, of uh, UK competition law. In this case, I mean, the, the Justice Department gets excited to bring cases when it finds uh, the slew of apparently hot documents that it found here and, and included in the complaint, there are, are, are drawings by uh, by Visa executives that, that portray Platt as being like a an underwater volcano uh, with uh, 
the real danger being what's below the surface, including um, uh, new payment systems and, and competition. There's a, a presentation to Visa's board of directors that said that, that called uh, Plaid being acquired by another rival an existential threat to our, our U.S. debit business. Uh, Plaid documents uh, said that its its uh, uh, introduction of pay to pay by bank debit services needs to be highly competitive with debit card pricing. Um, Visa said that that Plaid is clearly going to come after the high prices of interchange, and they're a threat across multiple vectors of our business. When you see uh, documents like that, you think of two things. One, where were the party's lawyers? How did they let all these documents get created? And two, how can justice not bring a suit when they've got uh, such such strong evidence uh, that's staring staring them in the face? Well, and they may have a billion dollars to work with soon. Uh, uh, Sultan, apparently the Justice Department and uh, Treasury are planning to uh, are trying to forfeit a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin left over from the demise of the Silk Road. Uh, uh, How did they find this money and uh, uh, what are their prospects for getting it? Well, I mean, first first off, I I have got to say that in when they shut it down in in 2015 and all of a sudden everyone's like well where'd all the money go it's like well it's in bitcoin just you know look because bitcoin is entirely visible right and it's i'm amazed it's taken them five years to find it frankly um and they ended up having to bring in outside experts and all this other stuff and to the point of doj being able to actually prosecute the volume of things on their plate right now i think this just shows that they they, they need to outsource which is what they ended up doing here and then finding well, approximately a billion as I remember, there was a, at least one agent, maybe two, who, uh, who who realized just how little the Justice Department understood this stuff and decided they should take some of this uh, Bitcoin. They got caught. Well, I mean, this this is this to me just speaks entirely openly about the fact that a no one understands crypto. Full stop. I mean, it's a it's a 1990s technology that's been rebranded in most cases. And the second is that everything is visible. Like it doesn't matter. Like if you think, oh, I'm going to steal some Bitcoin, like you'll get found out. And this just this just uh, I just find this absolutely hilarious how how they just don't do this. And when you link it back to something like the the attempt at acquisition of Plaid by Visa. All it does is reinforce the fact that we need to work on these systems like Plaid and InvestNet, which is Plaid's biggest competitor, and 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 do something to actually get this. But it, it does speak to this huge technical gap in Department of Justice. And as they appear to want to do more and more antitrust, um, certainly under the Biden administration, that seems to be where they're going. This is just yet another example of, of way too much stuff that they appear not to really understand what they're going for, because it's not a billion dollars they're actually chasing in the Silk Road case. It's like the four and a half is kind of the number people are saying. So they've got work to do still. Yeah. So they got more to find. And uh, 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 presumably if they forfeit it, they get to uh, um, say how they're going to spend it, if I remember right. Uh, uh, And each of the agencies that has an or in the forfeiture gets uh, a piece of the booty uh, and it goes to whatever uh, budget priority they have. So I uh, I expect some enthusiasm. I, I do too. I also would not uh, not be surprised at all if certain uh, crypto service providers that participated in this might be getting a little piece of that as well. Ah, yes. Okay. Well, we do have one more piece of election news that uh, we ought to get covered because just when you got used to the CCPA, uh, uh, even if you're not in California, it's setting the standards that you're going to have to live by because uh, um, you have 
customers in California. Uh, California dumped the CCPA and uh, uh, adopted the CPRA, the uh, uh, Consumer Privacy Rights Act, uh, uh, and created a brand new enforcement uh, uh, agency. Uh, um, uh, Dan, have you had a chance to go through what the CPRA does that the CP- CCPA didn't do? Yeah, so so the CPRA really builds on and expands on the CCPA. Uh, the CCPA has been in uh, uh, has been in effect um, since January, um, and businesses have spent a tremendous amount of time and energy. Um, you know, complying with that law, the CPRA provides new rights like the right to correct personal information, the right to limit the use of personal information and the sharing of personal information. Um, you know, and as you mentioned, it creates a new privacy regulator. So, um, you know, it certainly will be a new challenge for businesses. And I think the good news is, is, is that it doesn't get rid of the CCPA, but it builds on it. So businesses can, you know, take the work that they've done, um, um, and build on that over the next two years because the law comes into effect on January 1st, 2023. So I, I, you're right, it builds on it, but if you put it in track changes, it's practically all red. Uh, it's so striking uh, in uh, how much has changed, but you're right. It, it, uh, there are very few things that businesses have done that they will get to undo. It's just a question of how much more they'll have to do. Um, so here's something I was struck by. Um, the the law says uh, this bill can be amended to make it stronger by uh, the California legislature and an initiative. Um, it doesn't anywhere say exactly how you would make it weaker if you thought turned out to be a dumb idea or too expensive to do one or more of the things that are in there. Um, uh, That that struck me as odd. And I know you're not a Californian, but uh, uh, really is you can write uh, initiatives that can't be amended uh, uh, or can only be amended in, in a ratchet fashion in one direction only. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is going to be an issue that that businesses really, you know, that 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 really stresses businesses out because you know the whole point of the CCPA was to head off a ballot initiative like this, and now the legislature is kind of bootstrapped. Um, you know, I think that businesses will start to look to the federal government. Um, you know, there's been talk in Congress about potentially preempting state laws like this, and I think that as you know, as you see laws like the CPRA. Um, um, you know, New York might consider a privacy law. Washington State is. I think that there's going to be a huge focus on Congress to get something done and potentially preempt these laws. And maybe that's that's the way that you weaken these laws. Yeah, but I, th- I think um, the time to have done that was when there were Republican majorities in both uh, houses of Congress. And even then, it would not have been so easy. Uh, I can't imagine the Biden administration is going to be enthusiastic about doing that. And they're going to be lobbied hard by all of this, the Democratic state AGs. Uh, uh, although I, I do think the um, finding one thing that needs to be changed and pointing out just how hard it is to change it, even though it's a sensible change, might be a good lobbying strategy. Yeah, uh, so we we may see it. Uh, 
But we're not done with 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 antitrust. Uh, I want to go back to Michael uh, uh, because um, while the Justice Department may be full up, the FTC still has plenty of energy, and now we're starting to hear. Uh, very specific rumors coming out of the FTC that uh, by the end of this month, they will be bringing an antitrust case against Facebook uh, and maybe one that is uh, more dramatic than either the Plaid or the Google uh, uh, case. Uh, uh, Michael, what do we know about the, uh, uh, the case that Facebook that uh, the FTC is working on? Well, we know what's been reported by uh, Politico broke the story this this week that that uh, the, the suit is expected to be filed this month, that it's expected to allege that Facebook is dominating social media and that it's unduly restricted competition in part by acquiring smaller rivals like Instagram and WhatsApp and maintaining control of users' data, raising industry barriers to entry. It, it could be looking at, at ultimately forcing um, unwinding Instagram and, and, and WhatsApp as, as acquired parties. Uh, it's also reported that, that the FTC is not going to go to court on this case, but to bring it uh, within uh, the FTC's own Part 3 administrative procedure. And the way that works is the case gets tried to an administrative law judge. Whoever loses has the right to a de novo, de novo appeal to the full commission. Yes, that's the same FTC full commission who voted to file the complaint in the first place. And then whoever loses that has got the right to appeal in federal court. Uh, these cases take years. Um, filing uh, internally in the FTC's administrative procedure means that the state AGs, uh, and there are 30 state AGs who are rumored to be working on their own complaint, would need to file their own case if they're so inclined. Um, yeah, some argue that administrative cases are, are easier to bring, that it's a kangaroo court when uh, when it's the in, same in-house uh, agency acting as, as prosecutor and, uh, and judge and jury. Um, yeah, there may be some some merit. Yeah, I, I I I I'm one of those. I uh, uh, I remember uh, they uh, they did the Lab MD case, uh, and they approved a. a, a shaky case against LabMD for uh, um, uh, privacy violations. Uh, and their own administrative law judge said, you know, this case sucks. Um, and not surprisingly, the staff appealed to their bosses and said, bosses, you approved this case and we still like it. And their bosses all said, yeah, it's a good case. And then it went to uh, the uh, 10th Circuit, if I remember right. And uh, the 10th Circuit looked at this and said, no, your ALJ was completely right. This case sucked. Uh, so from Facebook's point of view, the prospect of an internal administrative law judge proceeding um, is pretty chilling because they don't get a, a, an independent look at uh, what is the FTC proposes to do until they get up on appeal uh, after they've lost the case uh, in two levels uh, at the FTC. And then finally, somebody independent gets to look at this and on a record that, uh, uh, you know, is mostly going to be resolved in favor of the decision maker. Uh, how is that not a little bit unfair to, uh, to Facebook? 
Well, they, they will tell you that the ALJ, the FTC will say that the ALJ is independent. Um, but uh, yeah, so former commissioner, FTC commissioner Maureen Olhausen did a study, wrote an article about four or five years ago, and she found that the commission had not rejected an action that, had, that it had previously authorized to be filed within the last 10 years. If you go back historically, yeah, they used to uh, overturn things maybe 25, 30% of the time. But what's interesting here, why is that? It could be that the composition of the FTC changed. Um, and just a quick note on that here, the FTC is an independent agency. Uh, they, uh, the commissioners serve seven-year terms, and they cannot be removed for political reasons. Right now, the FTC is three to two Republican. The next uh, Republican commissioner's term doesn't expire until September 2023. So President Biden can appoint one of the two sitting Democratic commissioners to be chairman, but he's still going to be that chairman's still going to be outvoted three to two. Um, so, and, yeah, and, and actually, I, uh, when you're the chairman, you have a lot of authority that uh, uh, makes it harder for the minority for the others to to vote you down I, on something like this. I can imagine them them coming to a different conclusion, but um, isn't it the case that the FTC chairman sets the uh, the agenda, makes the decisions about who gets promoted, uh, has a lot of ways of um, signaling the the outcomes that uh, he or she wants. Uh, yes, this this really, although we are really just moving into an era of uncertainty and uh, often the chairman will resign, but doesn't have to uh, after after one of the uh, opposing parties, commissioners is appointed chairman, the sitting chairman, in this case, Joe Simons, uh, you know, may be retiring, which would which would uh, give uh, Biden another another uh, seat uh, to nominate. Yeah, we'll see. There's uncertainty here. All right. And uh, just one last thing. The reason I think this is a much bigger deal is if this leads to undoing the WhatsApp uh, or Instagram acquisitions, first, those are way in the rearview mirror. Uh, and second, that's really a major threat to Facebook. That would that would I, w I won't say kill their business, but it would be a really serious body blow, maybe even the removal of an organ or two, uh, because they have counted on on both of those things to overcome the gradual graying of their Facebook audience. That, that's true. It would be a tremendous deal. Uh, I can't think of it. Well, there are relatively few examples of of, uh, of companies being dismembered. Yeah, AT&T is the obvious, the, the obvious uh, example. But uh, uh, yeah, it would certainly be a huge deal. Um, it's not going to happen for years, though. Okay. But I, you know, if, if you're Google, you're just going to defend the, the, the Justice Department case. Uh, if you're Facebook, your back is to the wall from the start here because the there's a real possibility that uh, it's a complete disaster if you don't litigate this. This is this is bet the company litigation, isn't it? Uh, sure, absolutely, it is. All right, okay. Um, so face recognition is in the news again. Uh, uh, it it was used to identify a. Uh, protester who uh, slugged a cop uh, in Lafayette Square uh, um, when it was being cleared uh, prior to the uh, president walking across to the uh, uh, church to hold up a Bible and give a press conference. Uh, and this guy, uh, um, apparently there was a, enough of his face on video that they could run a heretofore 
unknown facial recognition technology to identify him, and they apparently have arrested the guy. Sultan, uh, uh, does this tell us that facial recognition is actually pretty good? Well, it tells us it works to a degree. I like the the subtext of the story, which is also that they found his backpack with his ID about five feet away. <laughs> that didn't help. Where he yes. punched the police officer. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's let, let's let's take it a step back from facial recognition and say that a beat cop found his backpack. So, you know, there, there's a little bit there. I don't think you needed facial recognition. The, the video plus his driver's license was probably enough for any of the eyewitnesses to the event. Now, let's but we we should take a step back and say though that, he, that it's not just that this kind of technology is becoming more widespread and is clearly getting better, although I don't know if I would necessarily say it is good yet. I mean, versions of this technology have been in market in the intelligence community, as I'm sure you know, Stuart, for over 20 years. And, you know, we've all used it in different scenarios. Um, It's now very cost effective. It's also very easy to do. It's something that, you know, a a non-specialist can jump in on. That's kind of the more interesting part of this for me is that while the accuracy is a big unknown because you know, we're not doing model validation or any of the normal things we need to do for, for a technology like this. It is very easily available. And what we've seen in England and Singapore and in the PRC over the last few years is now, you know, on the ground with local police forces here in the United States. So, yeah. And it gives you it gives you a plausible list of people you might want to uh, um, investigate, especially if you happen I, to find their ID. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like the well, I found his driver's license because his backpack fell off while he was punching me in the face. That that, that <laughs> sentence works for me, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, and I, I, I like the stories that went out of their way to say the that he was a protester in a mostly peaceful protest, uh, uh, which I take it means that for most of the time, he was not actually punching uh, cops in the face. Uh, um, Well, I mean, we've only proved he did it twice. Or once or whatever. Right. So the, for the other the other 13 hours or whatever, he was just standing there. Right. What could be more mostly peaceful than that? Um, all right. I, I, um, I, uh, I well, while we're also... making fun or at least while I am of uh, uh, the uh, uh, media's uh, effort to uh, to toxify or detoxify uh, various political movements because they disagree or agree with them. Uh, um, uh, there was a story that I I couldn't resist asking you about um, uh, entitled artificial intelligence in healthcare is racist. Uh, And this is actually kind of an old story, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but uh, I thought I'd give you a chance to uh, explain what that story is talking about and whether you agree with whether with that uh, take on it. I, I am so tired. And Stuart, you have now reopened an old wound of mine about, you know, how AI is racist or AI is evil or all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I come down as someone who be, who's been in this AI universe for a couple of decades now of saying AI is not anything. AI is a piece of software. It is the data you feed. It, it is how you do it. That is the challenge. So, for example, Human Genome Project misdiagnosis, if you use that for clinical genetic analysis, um, if you are of Asian descent or African or African descent, you will get misdiagnosed because the standard reference point for the genomic systems that go into AI is an Anglo-Saxon, right? Basically, right? So you can't say that AI is, is, is racist just so long as you can also say that AI, you know, doesn't give good credit and things like that. I mean, we all heard the Apple card story with the married couple, you know, which basically rated women as being, you know, lower 
you know, or higher risk, I should say, than, than, than men, right? You know, and in healthcare in particular, we are dealing with tremendous amounts of data, the vast majority of which is not curated well, not managed well, et cetera, et cetera. I would much prefer the next time we have a conversation about this, we talk about bad data. That is the more important part of this. Um, but the fact is, if you give an AI bad data, as I have gotten on a soapbox many times of saying, you're going to get terrible results. And uh, it's everything from cancer screenings to polling data. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, although I don't know that more data solves this problem. It looks as what as though what they came up with is a plan to intervene. This is the insurance companies. Uh, they're, they're paying for everybody's health care. They said, are there people who, if we intervened early, we'd save money? Um, and they came up with a, a with a. a, a a set of ways of identifying people who are likely to cost them a whole lot of money uh, over the long haul and who, as to whom they ought to intervene. Um, and it turned out that they intervened more often with uh, uh, white people than with racial minorities. Uh, and they did save money. Uh, but somebody came along and said, wait a minute, the real thing they should be looking for is should we intervene early to head off uh, health problems, not to head off costs, but to head off health problems. And many of the minorities end up with health problems that don't cost a lot because they don't get compensated for their harm. And, and therefore, the artificial intelligence was asked the wrong question, and that's racist. I think that's a much tougher argument to make. See, but the fact is, is you're still using too narrow a data field because if you're actually looking at long-term health care, you know, there, there hasn't been an analysis that says starting at third grade, you know, how many hours of PE should you get and should you be eating McDonald's or any other yep. fast food? And you go down this whole list. I, I think in both cases, not only are they asking the wrong questions, they're also not using enough data, right? If you want to get in front of it, if you want to drive preventative activities, you have to be asking significantly broader questions that get into socioeconomic background, education, and a bunch of other areas that are historically places where we just don't have very good data, right? And so if you're thinking tactically about this, great, go for it. I see this as being no different than putting the ODB sensors in cars and noticing that if you, you swipe your debit card at a bar and then drive you know, seven miles home at an average speed in excess of 10% above the speed limit, then maybe your car insurance should go up. That's a tactical solution set, right? Which is what a number of car insurance companies are doing. In this case, we are asking, and not really sure why they're asking such a limited question set, but they should be asking significantly broader questions. Okay. Uh, well, I, I, I'm sure this this story, it's it's just like the facial recognition is evil story. The, the press cannot get enough of artificial intelligence is racist uh, uh, to the point where everybody believes it already. And so we'll get more stories to, uh, to comment on the future. Uh, speaking of stories that will never end, uh, governments hate end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, and uh, uh, Charles, there, there's a story out 
um, that I am still trying to make sense of suggesting that the European Council, which is all the governments, the representatives of the governments of these nations, and they're in charge of things like uh, national security and uh, counterterrorism, are actually going to propose that the European Commission produce a regulation that prohibits end-to-end encryption and things like WhatsApp. Um, you know, that's going to happen. Uh, and uh, I've uh, kind of likened governments uh, thinking about this to a bunch of kids standing at the edge of a cliff over a uh, uh, water-filled uh, gravel pit. It, you know, getting closer and closer and egging each other on saying, you go, no, you go. Oh, I'm going to go. No, no, I'm not going to go. Uh, so are they really going to go over the edge on this one? Yeah. And, and frankly, it's, um, it's a tough question. And I think we should just remind the context of that, um, of, of that um, leaked um, draft resolution. Um, it has been published like a couple of days after the uh, uh, Vienna terrorist attack. Uh, and it's the same kind of idea uh, coming on and on again, saying that probably intelligence services don't have uh, enough direct access to those type of message that are exchanged uh, through those uh, communication apps. And of course, if they were to have access, they will prevent everything and we will have no issues at all. Um, frankly, remains to be seen whether that's actually the case. Um, because at the same time, um, whilst they are pushing for what eventually might be seen as the end of end-to-end encryption, they also, uh, in different contexts, are pushing for stronger security uh, on devices. So probably, and that's my take on it, and happy to take the views of everyone, I, I think what they say is probably use end-to-end -end encryption, but let's uh, institu institutionalize a kind of backdoor for uh, any kind of intelligence services so that by the time we ask for it, we'll have it. I think that's probably more likely to be the outcome. So it, it, it is interesting. I, I think that'll be hard to do without mandates. Uh, uh, but uh, um, the fact that, that they're having this discussion uh, does suggest that uh, uh, people, governments around the world are just getting more and more fed up with how much information they're losing uh, as a result of end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's, of course, easier to blame end-to-end -end encryption than uh, law enforcement failures and things like the Austrian attack. Uh, uh, but uh, it's kind of hard to argue that um, completely being cut off from the content of communications is a bad thing if you're trying to break into conspiracies. Uh, um, so I, I would not be surprised to see this happen. Europe uh, owes less to Silicon Valley than the United States and the Silicon Valley lobby is less persuasive uh, in Brussels. Um, so it's the privacy guys versus the security guys with uh, much less uh, from industry on this. And uh, um, the security guys win those debates in the national capitals, which is why the uh, European Council, uh, the representative of the governments, is the logical place for this proposal to come from. Uh, 
whether it makes it through the commission, whether it makes it through the European Parliament, which both have a say about this, harder to to say. But, uh, uh, you know, these guys keep getting closer to the edge. Sooner or later, somebody's going to jump off and into the pond. All right. Um, so I can't resist this. Uh, uh, it turns out that uh, and I, I, I owe this story to Bruce Schneier. Uh, uh, it turns out that if you watch people's shoulders and arms during Zoom calls, uh, you have up to a 75 percent chance of guessing what they're typing. Uh, I, I, because they're 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 especially if they're uh, wearing short sleeves, uh, you can start to see their biceps and even their forearms move, uh, and you can make a guess about what they're typing. And uh, uh, this is a uh, uh, a Zoom hack that uh, uh, demonstrated that that's possible as long as the people don't have hair down to their shoulders, uh, you can tell a lot about what they're uh, they're doing off camera. Um, it, we can uh, we can in, uh, insert Jeffrey Tubin jokes here uh, uh, because uh, you know uh, what's uh, what's a cyber law podcast without a bad reference to sex. Uh, uh, but I couldn't resist uh, uh, explaining just how um, intrusive the technology that watches us uh, during Zoom calls could get. Um, and last uh, and pretty short, uh, you may have seen a headline that said uh, uh, one of the judges is doubtful about his authority to block TikTok's uh, um, uh, U.S. restrictions, the the uh, uh, the uh, Treasury uh, and Commerce Department orders against TikTok. The reason he said that is because there was already a nationwide injunction issued by a different judge and uh, uh, you know you have to have a uh, uh, actual uh, irreparable injury that you're trying to protect with a, uh, an injunction and if nothing changes after the injunction is issued it's kind of hard to say that you were uh, at risk of irreparable injury so I not a surprise doesn't really tell us where the cases are going, although none of them have gone well for the Justice Department uh, uh, so far. So we will see how that uh, turns out. Uh, thanks to all of you guys. Why don't we now turn to our interview with Peter Pry to talk about the Congressional EMP Task Force and his report. So, Dr. Peter, Peter Pry, um, can you tell us what EMP is and what it can do? Sure. Uh, an EMP is basically a super energetic radio wave that's got so much energy in it that it can destroy and overload electronics and destroy electronic systems. And uh, this is important. The sun can cause an EMP by means of a geomagnetic storm. Uh, on the EMP commission, we were concerned about the rare geomagnetic superstorm like the 1859 Carrington event or the 1921 railroad storm, something like that. If it hits the earth and uh, such storms occur every hundred, 150 years or so could destroy electric grids and uh, communications, basically black out electronic civilization worldwide and put billions of lives at risk because we can't survive without electricity anymore. Water, food, communications, business, and industry all depend upon it. An EMP can be caused by a single nuclear weapon detonated in outer space at high altitude, at the altitudes that satellites travel at, or at a very, at a, a, it can be detonated in an altitude as low as 30 kilometers. 
you know, some meteorological balloons can get up that high. It's still at the edge of outer space. But an EMP that way, if you were a country like a North Korea or Iran, you know, you could uh, basically destroy the United States by taking out the national electric grid. A single weapon detonated at 300 kilometers over the center of our country would not only take out all the, uh, the electric grid communications, cause cars to stop, have airplanes fall out of the sky, not only across all 48 contiguous United States, but over uh, Canada and a good chunk of Mexico, a single nuclear weapon, you know, because it's generating this electromagnetic field uh, that would uh, be damaging to electronics across that vast region with one warhead. And then there are non-nuclear EMP weapons that they don't have the lethal radius that a nuclear weapon has or that the sun has. They're much more limited in what they can do but it doesn't, wouldn't take many of them. Uh, you could get to the same place that a solar EMP or a nuclear EMP could with, oh, a, a handful of, uh, of, uh, of cruise missiles or drones that are armed with non-nuclear EMP weapons that would be designed to follow the power lines and black out, destroy transformers and control systems. It'd take a little longer, but you'd end up in the same place with the electric grid and everything that runs off of electricity basically blacked out and non-operational. And you can actually... Go- so, let me let me just ask about that. Uh, um, I, I, I kind of assumed that an EMP was a single explosion. You're suggesting that you could, you could just kind of spray a continuous stream of EMP uh, from a cruise missile. Yes, that's right. Uh, the U.S. Air Force, for example, has one of these called CHAMP. And if you Google CHAMP, uh, uh, you know, champ tests blacking out electric grids. You can actually see uh, an, a demonstration of the champ causing localized blackouts. The warhead doesn't explode. It emits this radio signal. It's a very high frequency radio signal that's got so much energy in it that it's destroying the electronics on the ground. Wow. Um, and um, one nuclear warhead would have that uh, result. Uh, I, is it any nuclear warhead or do you have to specially design the warhead to uh, uh, have a particular shaped charge or something of the sort? Well, any nuclear warhead is going to create EMP because they all produce gamma rays. And so even a crude first generation atomic bomb would pose a very significant EMP threat to, uh, to the United States. Uh, and during the Cold War, we tried to harden not our civilian critical infrastructures, but, uh, but our strategic forces and our strategic command and control systems against a nuclear EMP attack that could be conducted by nuclear weapons of normal design, conventional design. In other words, nuclear weapons that were basically designed to make a big blast. And uh, uh, we went to 50,000 volts per meter because back in those days, we thought that would be the maximum EMP threat. That was the... Uh, the highest field you could get out of the Russian SS-18 Mod 1, which is a 25 to 50 megaton warhead, enormously powerful warhead. But at the end of the Cold War, uh, we discovered the Russians may have known about this at the beginning of the Cold War because we saw them experimenting with certain technologies we didn't understand at the time. But there is a category of nuclear weapon called super EMP weapons. And uh, uh, they are specially designed to just make EMP. And ironically, they actually have very low yields. Uh, you know, they look much more like the first 
weapons that were tested by North Korea yields in the range of one to three kilotons because they're not designed to make a big explosion. They're designed to put out gamma rays. They're optimized for gamma radiation. So we, we spent a lot of time laughing at the North Koreans for their uh, damp squib uh, tests. Is it possible that they were actually testing for gamma ray production? We think so, because we were told uh, uh, about, about a year and a half before the North Koreans conducted their first nuclear test in 2006, we were, the EMP commission was approached by uh, a, uh, a delegation of Russian generals who were the top, Russia's top EMP experts. And they warned us that there had been, they, they claimed it wasn't the fault of Russia, but that there had been technology uh, leakage from Russia so that the North Koreans knew the secret of the super EMP weapon and could build one themselves and warned us that they may be testing one of these things in the, in, in the near future. Now, I think they were basically covering their tracks personally, because there's all kinds of other evidence that the Russians have been, and Chinese too, have been providing technology to North Korea deliberately, which is how the North Koreans went from being no nuclear threat to being a very sophisticated nuclear threat that we face, face today. It's hard to believe that impoverished, backward North Korea did that all on their own. Uh, but the uh, first, uh, and right on the money, uh, you know, uh, they said in a year, uh, in a year or two, and 18 months after we had that meeting, uh, North Korea did do its first nuclear test, which looked very much like the super. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it was a very low yield, one to three kilotons. The New York, most of the world, you're correct, was dismissing it and saying, oh, it's such a low yield, that can't be a threat. The New York Times even speculated and was dismissive in saying that maybe the North Koreans had, uh, had, con- had, had uh, were, were lying and that they had conducted a very large, high explosive explosion and were trying to pass it off as a nuclear test. But it was a very low yield nuclear test. And by the way, designing weapons to create a low yield, lower than the nominal yield of 10 kilotons, that's actually harder than achieving the normal nominal yield like a 10 kiloton weapon. That has to be a special design to be able to control a yield of that, uh, of that size, and especially to modify the weapon so that it basically produce, produces more gamma rays. You know, the energy is being trans- converted into gamma rays and not into blast and shock, you know, which is what most normal uh, n- nuclear weapons do. And in fact, we were concerned and the commission warned that the North Koreans might have two of these super EMP weapons orbiting over us on a regular basis right now. The North Korean satellites, KMS-3 and KMS-4, look very much like a secret super weapon that the Soviet Union developed back in the Cold War to do exactly this. You know, the idea was you orbit a satellite over the South Pole, and then just before a mass nuclear strike, you detonate that EMP attack to fry the command and control systems, fry the forces so that we can't retaliate. Then you launch your missiles, ICBMs, submarines, uh, submarine missiles over the North Pole to blow up bombers on their fields, uh, the ICBMs in their silos, destroy our our ballistic missile submarines in their ports before they can generate. Uh, And that was the basis for Soviet plans for surprise nuclear attack, to use this super secret weapon called the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System that goes over the North Pole uh, as a satellite, disguised as a satellite, doesn't look like a nuclear attack, uh, to basically get in that first EMP shot to paralyze us. And both these North Korean satellites follow that same trajectory. They 
swing over the South Pole. They're at, at an altitude of 300 to 400 kilometers. So that's just the optimum height to put an EMP field over North America. And we don't have any ballistic missile early warning radars or interceptors facing south. We can't intercept or even see those satellites coming until they pass over North America. Although we kind of know when they're coming, right? They, they, they come because they're, they're in orbit. They, uh, they, they have very predictable orbits. But to shoot them down, right, that's right. You still need to get a radar lock on them and have, a, a, have an interceptor, you know, in a position so that you can get them before they fly over us. Right now, we don't have that until they're basically over Alaska. And if I remember, the EMP Commission estimated that something like 90% of Americans would be dead in a year if, uh, if, if one of these devices was set off uh, at about three or 400 uh, miles uh, above the United States. Yes, any nationwide blackout whether if that lasts a year, whether it's caused by EMP from the sun or EMP from a nuclear weapon or EMP from a non-nuclear weapon, or if it's caused by cyber attacks. And there are ways of doing it by physical sabotage, too. You know, you could use rocket-propelled grenade launchers or, or sniper fire to destroy. If you destroyed enough transformers, you know, you could do it in a very low-tech way, too, to basically black out the grid. And we, had, we estimated that up to 90% of the population would die from starvation, disease, and societal collapse. And a lot of people who are unfamiliar with these threats you know, are aghast at that and thought, oh, the commission is hyping the threat. That can't be true. But if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, part of the way we, in fact, we initially were criticized for, uh, by some very intelligent people in the intelligence community for lowballing the threat. Our, our first estimate was, well, up to two-thirds of the population could die and, 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 and we'd be able to sustain the other third. We thought that might be the case because if you go back to 1900, just before World War I, that period before World War I, before the country really became electrified and we were still a, a pre-electronic, in fact, we didn't really become an electronic civilization until well after the Roosevelt administration. Right. Franklin Roosevelt is the one who rose who uh, who electrified our economy. So we became dependent upon that. But we were able to sustain a population of about 100 million people before, you know, the electric electric grids became extremely commonplace. So that we thought at that time that, well, you know, losing about two thirds of the population seemed uh, seemed likely. But then uh, a, a brilliant guy, he was named Fritz Ehrmarth. He was the uh, uh, chairman of the National Intelligence Council you know, said, wait a minute, you know, when you go back to that period of time, uh, but, but say between 1880, which is when the first electric grid was basically introduced, and the Roosevelt administration, uh, most of the population during that period of time was, uh, were farmers, uh, especially before World War I. I think in 1900, 75% of the population were still farmers. Today, we have two, less than 2% of our population feeds the other 98%. And most of those people were no more than one generation removed from being pioneer stock. Almost everybody knew how to live off the land. Uh, almost every house had well water. You know, uh, they didn't depend upon vast electrical infrastructures to pump and purify water. You know, a fundamental thing. And Arm Armarth argued that he thought that the casualties would be much higher. And he's actually, I think he was right about that. So, uh, you know, we, 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 Changed that estimate up to up to up to ninety percent, taking into account the fact that uh, 
so few Americans know how to survive, you know, in a, in a, in a, without electronic civilization stripped away. We have so few farmers, uh, even people who try to prepare for this thing, kind of thing, preppers, you know, number maybe 3% of our population, almost nobody is prepared. Okay, so I, 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 I'm not sure that, that uh, diving deep on whether it would be two-thirds or 90% of Americans who, who die is, is uh, going to change our estimate of the threat. I, but you, you've been saying this for a while. The Trump administration put out an executive order that said we really ought to look at this hard. Uh, but you're getting a lot of kind of... Uh, low-level pushback. And I, I remember EMP as a threat has been kicking around for a long time. Um, people used to be extraordinarily dismissive of it. I don't hear that so much, but you're certainly getting the electric industry and parts of the uh, Department of Energy that think this is way overrated as a threat, that uh, in fact, our grid will stand up to this kind of thing much better than um, uh, the EMP commission has suggested. Uh, and, and so let me, let me ask uh, first, uh, who is the EMP commission and who are the doubters and why should we believe the EMP commission instead of the doubters? Well, you should believe the EMP commission because the free world's collective expertise is represented by the EMP Commission. And the doubters and naysayers, who are very widespread, for the most part know nothing about EMP and are not, are not bona fide experts. Uh, I know we live in a time when expertise seems to count for nothing. And that if you, and merely having an opinion entitles you apparently to get the attention of Congress and the press. Well, you, you also have to have a Twitter account. Right. But uh, well, let me just talk about the uh, uh, about some of our uh, some of our commissioners, uh, for example. I, and and let me also just back up a little bit and talk about what is a commission, because it's also disappointing that so many Americans who live in a constitutional republic don't seem to know what the role that congressional and presidential commissions play in making public policy. Okay, uh, it has been a uh, one of the uh, tools that we use when we are dealing with complicated issues of science and technology is a commission, a presidential or a congressional commission. We get the best people that we have on this subject. The commission uh, typically has vast resources and almost dictatorial powers so that it can order the secretary of defense or whoever it needs to order. Uh, it can issue subpoenas so they can collect classified information and get the best science and information and data, and even or order the Department of Defense, the Department of, uh, of Energy to do analysis for the commission, and the commission can, can do this analysis itself so that it can come up with the uh, uh, closest you can for to a definitive answer for making purposes of public policy. And, in the case, and uh, typically commissions are staffed and run by the very best experts we have uh, not only in America, but the free world. And that was the case with the EMP Commission. If I could just describe some of the commissioners, for example, the chairman of the commission, Dr. William Graham, who was my, my boss, my immediate superior on the commission. Well, uh, he was on the defense science team that first discovered the EMP phenomena during the 1962 Starfish Prime High Altitude Test. He was one of those who laid the foundations of not only discovering the EMP phenomenology, but laying the foundations of EMP science and was personally responsible and involved in hardening 
our nuclear forces and strategic command and control systems, uh, which, by the way, most of that stuff was deeply classified. Oh, there were some reports, scattered reports here and there, uh, you know, that that, uh, that revealed the EMP threat uh, in the 1980s. And uh, Glassstone's book, uh, The Effects of Nuclear Weapons, had some reporting on it. But much of what we're talking about today, the, the depth of the threat, uh, you know, was not publicly available until the EMP Commission did its reports and Dr. Graham decided to declassify these reports, that they would be published because we needed to inform the public policymakers, people who run the electric utilities and all of that. So Graham is one example. He, he's our foremost scientist on this. And along the way, by the way, in addition to hardening the Department of Defense systems against EMP, he also served as President Reagan's White House science advisor and ran NASA. Uh, Dr. John Foster was another EMP commissioner. He invented and dev- designed all of the nuclear weapons that exist in our current nuclear inventory. Another commissioner, Lowell Wood, you know, was uh, men- mentored by Edward Teller, the uh, inventor of the hydrogen bomb. And Lowell Wood is literally one of the most brilliant men in America. He has more patents and inventions than Thomas Edison. He is the most. Okay, so uh, let me let me stop you there. That's a, that's enough uh, credentials. That's that's impressive. Uh, uh, but I, I there are there are people who say you've overstated the threat because either the way in which we've designed our systems uh, or the protective measures that we've adopted ought to be sufficient to contain the disaster. Um, and and I guess my question is, uh, why would they? say that if they didn't believe it? Oh, because we have a long history of industry. Well, let me talk about who those people are, first of all. You know, the people who say that, for example, for the Electric Power Research Institute, you know, they've put out, they're the ones you're referring to. They've been basically Uh the tip of the spear for the electric power industry, uh, uh, putting out reports that claim the EMP commission was wrong, the threat isn't that great. And uh, it's just astonishing to me that they can get away with that. And and intelligent people will listen to them because the people who are writing those reports are not experts. They never worked in the Department of Defense or the intelligence community on EMP issues. If you go back before the presidential executive order and you look at their publications and histories, they don't they never worked in EMP before at all. You know, they don't know anything. And uh, not only did the EMP Commission critique their studies and debunk their studies, but the U.S. Air Force Electromagnetic Defense Task Force, which had 200 of the Air Force's experts, they also examined and critiqued the uh, APRI reports and revealed a lot of the deep disinformation in those reports. Why are they doing that? Well, let me ask you a question. You know, why did the Zeppelin industry, okay, when they could have put helium into Zeppelins to protect their whole industry from going extinct instead of stupidly using hydrogen gas to fly people around, why did they do that? I'm guessing it's because they because it was cheaper. <laughs> exactly, and that's why they always do it. Why did uh, well? There was a time when Coca-Cola really put cocaine before uh, b- before Teddy Roosevelt. You know, and people would get cooked on cocaine. You know, because that's how they made profits before we had a pure food and drug administration. I. So why don't why are we not hearing more about this from the Department of Energy or the Defense Department? Why are they not? 
jumping up and down. And they are certainly jumping up and down about uh, cyber uh, uh, threats to uh, uh, their capabilities, and including the civilian support capabilities. Shouldn't they be jumping up and down about this as well? They are. Uh, we have a presidential executive order. President Trump didn't just sign that executive order, uh, you know, on his own. Whenever an, uh, here's another thing I guess people don't understand about how government works. Uh, when an executive order is written and signed off on by a president, it represents the collective views of the United States government, uh, the Department of Energy, the Department of Defense. Uh, yep. The, the federal it's usually it's usually a watered down consensus so do you do you read his uh, executive order much of which is we should study this we should look at that we should come up with plans for the other uh, is kind of standard uh, uh, we should plan for bad things uh, uh, outcome uh, I didn't see somebody saying oh my god we've got a year to get uh, uh, our grid re uh, uh, reinforced against this kind of an attack. Well, I recommend you reread that executive order. Perhaps you should reread it with what, uh, read with one of my books, uh, The Power and the Light, as a guideline that explains the executive order. The executive order, well, I, I have, this may seem a, a bit of vanity, okay? But, uh, but the executive order almost seems to me to deliver on a promise that President Trump made to me personally before he became president. And I had the opportunity to brief him at 45 minutes during the Iowa caucuses and explain uh -huh. to him the magnitude of this threat. And he wanted to know, he wanted to know, well, how come the country isn't already protected against this? And I explained to him that the threat was so great that there were some departments and agencies like uh, that didn't want to take responsibility for it. Uh, moreover, uh, you have this phenomenon in Washington, you know, EMP is not widely understood. Even today, there are very few real experts on EMP. And if the bureaucracy is not expert on it, and they don't understand it. They usually don't want to touch it. So they will pass the buck or try to avoid getting out of responsibility. The Department of Defense, and that's exactly what, what, what was happening. The Department of Defense would say, well, we've protected our nuclear retaliatory forces as best we can, you know, at this, at this time. But when it comes to the electric grid, and food and water and the industry, that's the Department of Homeland Security's job, you know, and this thing can also be caused by the sun. So it's not coming from a foreign power. So it's DHS's job to do it. And DHS would point to the nuclear EMP threat and say, well, this is their job. The Department of Energy, you know, would say, well, you know, the utilities job is not national security. So Okay, so what about the what about the solar uh, threat? Uh, it's uh, you you said I think it's a it's a ten percent chance in any decade that it's going to happen. Uh, why aren't people responding to that? I'm not done responding to your your other point okay. about the executive order. Let's talk about what's in the executive order because you've just characterized it as basically eyewash, and that's not accurate or true. When President okay. when I talked to President Trump to complete my anecdote, okay. He said, don't worry, Dr. Pry, when I'm elected president, we're going to knock their heads together and get this problem solved. And if you look at the executive order, it's rather unusual than other executive orders because there are timelines for accomplishing goals. And they're not just studies. The purpose of the studies is to come up with answers to certain issues uh, to protect the various infrastructures. And they're not, they're not just protecting the electric grid. It's all the, the critical infrastructures. 
uh, they owe they owe a annual report to the White House because the president of the, of the United States himself has put himself in charge of implementation of the executive order through his national security advisor. So it's on a very tight deadline. It says right in the first paragraph that it is the policy of the United States to be protected. So it's not like, well, we're going to study this problem and see if we have to take action. It says, no, it's the policy of the United States that we are going to protect these critical infrastructures. Basically, the executive order is implementing the recommendations of the EMP commission. And uh, and we helped write it. So uh, I respectfully disagree with you uh, the, uh, with the idea that this is just a normal kind of an executive order that pays lip service and uses boilerplate. There are deadlines in there, many deadlines to achieve the uh, to, 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 to come up with concrete deliverables uh, to achieve rapid implementation of protection of the country from this existential threat, including solar uh, and uh, and the nuclear threat. So are they meeting the deadlines? No, they're not meeting the deadlines. That's that's that 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 would be my concern. It's this is a, this is an interagency process, and uh, until the deadlines are enforced, it doesn't happen. And now we have a president uh, leaving office. Uh, I, so I think let me let me move to a separate question, which is: suppose you believe, as I do, uh, maybe you do, uh, the government is not going to address this problem right away. Um, this, it is certainly possible for a, a, a certain kinds of EMPs to fry every computer on my desk, um, uh, but maybe not all of the EMPs. The long uh, wavelength uh, is too long to actually fry uh, micro components. So is there anything that ordinary people, ordinary preppers could do to protect their uh, uh, belongings, or maybe even their solar system, uh, their solar energy system, from uh, a, an EMP. Sure, there's a lot of things they can do, and uh, and solar energy systems are actually pretty robust against EMP because, as you uh, the solar EMP anyway, because as you point out, the wavelengths are so long. You know, you have to uh, the target has to be pretty long to pick up the EMP pulse from the sun. Uh, something the size of a house is smaller than the length of that wavelength. Uh, nonetheless, even solar systems, if, if, if the system is connected into the electric grid, the EMP can get into your solar system that way, and it can get into your personal computer that way, even though the personal computer uh, may not be directly coupled. If it gets into the power lines, which it will, it can follow the power lines and get into your personal computer and knock it out that way. And even if it doesn't knock out your personal computer, the solar EMP would collapse the electric grid and uh, your personal computer and other electronic systems will not work without the electric grid. Uh, so you can have a home generator and, and uh, a simple thing to do would just be to put it on manual, not on automatic, because if it's on automatic, you know, then the machine is basically coupled into the wiring of your house. And when that pulse comes down the power lines, it'll get into your generator and fry the generator potentially. But if you just put the thing on automatic, you've created an air gap and, uh, and that will keep the pulse from getting into the generator or even getting into the rest of your house. So that's one simple thing could, that people could do. But more important, you know, I mean, you can survive without electricity. You know, uh, most of people's efforts, a lot of people... Uh, want to do things like build Faraday cages in their garages to protect their cars. Uh, 
uh, you know, but really you should be preparing uh, for the kinds of emergency steps that you would take for any situation that might deprive you of food and water for a long time, longer than a hurricane, for example, that might last. Uh, you know, for example, have a water and food is far more important than making sure that your electronics survive. You know, uh, stockpile canned goods; those are the those they they will last basically forever. Uh, you know, if you have uh, uh, canned food, uh, can't canned food uh, could give you a good excuse to have a swimming pool, you know, so that you would have uh, 20,000 gallons in your backyard that would be <laughs> av- water. that would be available uh, a source of water or have a filtration systems. At least they can be purchased very inexpensively online so you can so that you can filter water and uh, and have food and water to drink. Those are the most important things. Having a medicine kit, and knowing how to use it. You know, think about where you live. Do you live in a in a major urban industrial area? That's going to be the most dangerous. Do you have a place in the country, or do you have friends in the country? You might just want to think about your circumstances and and how you can uh, get yourself to a safe place and be prepared for this uh, if it if it were to ha- if it were to happen. And how much would it? Let me let me ask them the other question. How much would it cost to build in? Uh, protections for the grid so that we actually could keep our electrical uh, service in the event of a solar or a nuclear attack? It would be very inexpensive. Uh, You know, the EMP commission back in 2008, when we did the calculations for this, we estimated it would cost two to four billion dollars with a B uh, to protect the electrical, protect the electric grid, uh, grid, to protect all the critical infrastructures, 10 to 20 billion dollars. And we're not talking about taxpayer money here. That's something that people should remember. Uh, there's a well. It's it's going to come from ratepayers who turn out to be mostly taxpayers. Well, it, uh, yes, okay. Uh, you know, the Department of Defense knows from 50 years of experience of building EMP hardness into ICBMs and cruise missiles and our command and control systems that it typically adds. If you design the hardness into the system. It adds typically 1% to 6% to the cost of a system, something between 1% to 6%. And for the things we're talking about, transformers, control systems, SCADAs, and the like, it's probably going to be a lot closer to 1%, you know, because an EHV transformer doesn't have to fly, doesn't have to penetrate Soviet air defenses. You know, it just sits there, and it's uh, big and heavy, and you don't have to worry about miniaturizing the, hard, uh, the, the hardening devices either, you know. And we've already done this as a society once already and very successfully, because in order to be an electronic civilization, there's a kind of EMP that happens all the time that we wouldn't work as an electronic civilization if we hadn't already hardened against it. We usually talk about E1 EMP, which is the nuclear EMP, and E3 EMP, which is the solar EMP. In between them, there's this thing called E2 EMP that we never talk about, lightning. Yeah. And almost everything, including this personal computer I'm talking to you over, has been hardened against lightning. If you look at, at the, right. uh, the plug that goes into the wall, it's a fat plug. And that's because there's a little surge arrester built right into the plug. And what it does is it, it creates an air gap. It stops lightning from, that hits the power lines from coming into your computer. So, And that's such a painless thing that we never even thought about it. Uh, uh, people said, well, in order for electronics to work, you know, we're just going to incorporate in it as in, in, as the best design standards and practices. So every pretty much everything that's crucial 
uh, is protected against lightning. And we basically just have to do that same thing and just say, look, it, if you're going to build AHV transformers and SCADAs to run the electric grid and other critical infrastructures upon which national security depends and the lives of millions of people depend, you've got to make it hard against new natural and nuclear EMP by putting in more robust. It's basically the same technology, except it has to be faster and more robust to deal with these uh, these faster and more robust threats. So, so- Peter, I'm going to I'm going to uh, suggest that I think you've uh, the, the the EMP commission has missed a bet um, when we were looking around for things we could spend federal money on to, to dig us out of the first great recession, not the covid one, but the other one. Uh, we, we needed stuff to spend money on. And uh, uh, a, a vice president named Joe Biden said we should spend a lot of money on building a smart grid. And they did. They, they put aside a whole bunch of money for smart grid. Uh, uh, if you had this on the menu as a uh, uh, a way to uh, uh, stimulate the economy, it, you just have to wait for a financial uh, regulatory uh, crisis. And looks like one is coming along every 10 years. Uh, and then maybe people would say, well, we have to spend money on something. It's just a few billion dollars. Why don't we harden the grid? Uh, uh, th- this does sound pretty doable let me ask you the last question uh, what's your sense of the prospects for um progress on this issue in a biden administration okay go back to your first one uh, you know we didn't really miss that opportunity the obama administration missed that opportunity the emp commission was around congress and the commission were urging them hey you should harden the grid for ideological reasons that maybe you don't want to get into, you know, they didn't want to do it and uh, they didn't listen to us. Under the Trump administration, we one of the things they were going to do was spend a lot of money, invest a lot of money in upgrading and modernizing our critical infrastructures. And, uh, and so we hoped the Trump administration would accomplish that. Uh, to answer your question about under a Biden administration, I'm, I don't think it, I, I, I think this might be one of the presidential executive orders that gets canceled. You know, Joe Biden has said he's going to look at uh, canceling a number of President Trump's executive orders. And unfortunately, EMP, uh, it should be bipartisan. And it has had a lot of bipartisan support. In Congress, for example, you know, there is an uh, an EMP caucus. And uh, Yvette Clark, who is a, uh, you know, uh, a a liberal Democrat from New York City, you know, is the vice chairman of the Congressional EMP Caucus, and she's been a great supporter. There have been a lot of Democrats, actually, who have been who have been supporters, including in 2020. Well, when we passed the uh, National Defense Authorization Act in 2020, it basically incorporated the president's EMP executive order. And that wouldn't have gotten into the National Defense Authorization Act without the support of the House, you know, which uh, including Adam Smith. He's the chairman, the Democrat chairman. Uh, so there is Democrat support for it. But unfortunately, it's one of those issues that the Democrats and the left like to beat up on Republicans because most people don't understand EMP. And it's easy to make it sound like, oh, if you believe in the EMP threat, you're we're, you're one of these guys that wears tinfoil on your head. So they delight in trying to belittle uh, Republicans and conservatives and say, oh, this is a Republican conservative issue. And it's kind of fell into that category. Yeah, yeah, I can see. I can see it. It it, it lends itself to uh, tinfoil hat uh, uh, jokes. Uh, um, so we're 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 likely to spend four years at least uh, without 
too much progress on this unless something disastrous happens, which is not uh, an improvement. Uh, um, I, uh, Peter, uh, thank you for the time you have spent on this, for your uh, persistence. Uh, this issue for whatever is going on on the left of the Democratic Party, I, there's no doubt that this issue is getting a lot more attention today than it did uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And, and that's down in part to you. So thank you for uh, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, and uh, thanks also to Sultan Meji, uh, Michael uh, Wiener, uh, Charles Heliput, uh, and uh, uh, Dan Poder for joining me on episode 337 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, music by Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design. And don't forget, send your comments uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, uh, if you suggest a guest and they come on the show, we will send you our highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mug. Uh, follow me on Twitter and I will say something uh, uh, reasonably humorous about the stories we're thinking about covering. Uh, and you get to vote on which ones you think we should uh, uh cover on the uh, uh, episode and uh, leave us a rating, leave us a, a review. We're always glad to get uh, uh, especially entertaining uh, reviews, uh, even if they're abusive. Uh, and then please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.